Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today, we're talking about The Power of the Dog, a new film written and directed by Jane Campion. It's streaming right now in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos on Netflix. It's set in Montana in 1925, and it tells the story of two brothers and their relationship with a young woman in their community, as well as her son. To call this movie intense is a terrible understatement. This movie is a psychological thriller of the first order. The movie uses sound and music very effectively to take the audience on a pretty wild ride. So I'm excited to bring this to you today. We're joined in conversation today by Jane Campion, as well as key members of her sound post-production team. We have the supervising sound editor, Robert McKenzie, who won an Academy Award for his work a few years ago on Hacksaw Ridge, as well as the sound designer of the film, Dave Whitehead, and the re-recording mixer and sound effects editor, Tara Webb. We were able to have Jane Campion join us for the first part of this conversation and talk about how she uses sound and the music, which is provided in this film by Johnny Greenwood, a really remarkable score to have a psychological effect on the audience and how she worked with her sound team. She had to jump off midway through the conversation to go do other promotional activities for the film, but that gave us an opportunity to go even further in depth with the sound team about how they actually accomplish the track. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It's, uh, it's really interesting and I hope you enjoy the film, Power of the Dog. I'm so thrilled to be in conversation with all of you today about the power of the dog. I feel like uh, this is exactly the kind of film that I love to have a conversation about the sound on this podcast with, because I, I feel like in our in our part of the world, a lot of attention is often paid to big studio movies with bombastic sequences and big set pieces. And, uh, and the power of the dog has a very, very different approach to the sound. Uh, it's really in, in, in parts it feels minimalist and stark uh and but it's a very very powerful track uh, with a lot of incredibly subtle work going on and so i'm thrilled to be in conversation with you about it jane i want to start with you as the writer and director of the film how much are you thinking about sound as you write and does the power of the dog i'm kind of curious does the movie sound like you imagined it would as you were writing well sound to me is is like really um magical element in any story because it's something you can't see coming it's um it, it can always be an element of you know deep surprise i think uh and um i always feel it or hear it in what i imagine is the atmosphere of a scene um but to be honest i don't i mean i wouldn't imagine it like in the big wide spaces, you know, and I also, I guess, whenever I think about the house, I always feel like, oh, this house is so creaky, it's so haunted, and it's got winds whistling. And, you know, I, I, I love sound because, as I say, um, it's not something you can see. So it's always, <laughs> obviously, um, has that, you know, like shock value and surprise value and unexpected quality. Um, yeah, but. When I'm writing and, you know, obviously we had things like um, the ugly duet, as Johnny Greenwood called it, with the um, duel between the piano and the um, banjo. That was a sort of clearly obvious issue that we were going to have to pull together. And um, But 
really I'm just trying to balance the meanings, you know, and, and the characters. And then later on I'm, I'm, I'm going to think about how to, how sound can work in with that. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought uh, up some of those sequences. I want to talk with you more specifically about them, but uh, I'm curious to kind of dive a little bit deeper into this question of tone because I feel like every department uh, in this film, be it cinematography, costume design, uh, you know, production design, and, and music and sound, obviously, is really contributing to this very ominous, foreboding tone uh, that the film has. And and when all the departments are working together like that, then that means that they're led by a very strong directorial presence. And so, uh, Jane, I'm curious that what were the conversations that you had with Robert? Uh, and Dave and Tara from the from the very beginning about you know conceptually what you wanted them to do and how the sound design the, the design was going to play a part in supporting this tone that you were that you were achieving with the film. Yeah, I think one of the most important things for me is working with people like Rob and Tara and Dave, who um, bring their whole intelligence, their whole being, you know, into the work, and that they are lovers of story. That's really a big, big deal for me that they aren't standing back. They really um, enjoy figuring out how to get sound to help focus um, the, the storytelling and um, bring things to a point that you would never get without, the, you know, a, a well-created soundtrack. And I think for me, like, you know, I'm, I go back to the time when, you, you know, you're working in film with uh, mixes that you were too scared to ask to, you know, redo something because they were so grumpy and aggressive. <laughs> and, um, you know, like if you, if you didn't think you got it properly and you said, oh, can we do that one more time? And they're like, they're like you know, <laughs> um, that was just like the worst. And, you know, I used to have to build up my courage to, to say, like, I'm never going to let anything go, no matter how grumpy or aggressive, you know, the sound mixer is. So um, to be with uh, someone like Rob, who is he's just a friend, you know, and I say that in the best, biggest possible, most beautiful way, that he's um, so skilled and subtle and understanding um, drama that, I, you know, I feel understood. And that is, I think, one of the biggest um one of the biggest things, like if there's anything going on in the, you know, in the in the film or in the picture, he totally gets it. And um, you know, same with Day, they're like intelligent and they really lend themselves towards towards me. Like I think we're, we're friends, you know, and we use all of our intelligence, all of our sensitivity, to try and um, to figure out. I mean, it's experimental too, wouldn't you say, Robert? You know how to how to make sound play best in, in, in this storytelling. And, you know, what are we going to do? You know, we know we could do everything and anything, you know. And um, I think we started off talking mostly about, like, atmospheres, how important I think they are in a big scope film like this, you know, like that, and that, that they've got a density to them um, and a really particularity in the different worlds that the film steps through, you know, like the house and the, the outer world by the river and things like that. And we did a lot of experimenting with that. I mean, Tara, you were really in charge of that. Yeah, no, I mean, this film for me was like a dream come true because it's, uh, you know, I love subtlety and detail and atmospheres, backgrounds. And that's 
that's I think where my strengths lie. So b- being able to work, having this film and watching it the first time, I was just sitting there so excited about, you know, in my mind hearing the winds and, you know, all that kind of subtlety that we could we could bring forth with Dave as well. Bringing that world to life, you know, like we're, we it was shot in the South Island of New Zealand and, um, you know, we were trying to uh, take us to Montana, you know. We were really, so the thing is we were in the middle of a pandemic. It was hard to go to Montana as well. So having to try and draw those sounds, the, the birds of the region, uh, of, of, of the state, and um, uh, trying to source those sounds uh, was, was also quite tricky. But um, we managed to find that character and find those particular sounds for that location. Uh, and bring the the world of Montana to life in the film. You did a remarkably good job. Uh, Full disclosure, I I grew up on a cattle ranch. My dad was a cowboy. I've been in those sort of cattle, big cattle drives when I was a kid with, when you're moving thousands of head of cattle and you you nailed it. That is exactly what it, it took me right back to that. Fortunately, I did not, I did not have a, I did not have a character like Phil Burbank, who was sort of torturing me psychologically. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we found, oh, I found really interesting, and when, you know, like, I think we, you guys collected some extraordinary sounds um, for that cattle drive material, and, you know, they, it was so exciting when I first heard it. And, you know, you get really carried away, and, you know, it's like the, really the floor is like rumbling like it really is and 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 then you sort of go like I don't know if this is the right character for our film though you know like um it's making those choices all the time like what's excessive you know what's going to actually sit in in the whole palette of the sound palette of the film like if that is so intense what what are we saying you know it's that it's it's like pulling back from that temptation to just be enormous to be Correct, you know, to 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 actually follow those balances that really work in the story. The reco- the recordings that we had from Richard Flynn, the sound recordist of the cattle from the actual day, there was there was so much material, and so it was really great to be able to go through and find some really great sections of, of that to you know to to really give us the, the vibe of the cattle. But then also the ADR that was done and the of the actors in the background, the cowboys at work, and the conversations that they were having was amazing as well. Um, so, you know, that, that gave us the, the vibe of the, the cowboys at work and that sort of thing as well. things that I don't do is like I don't like to use um, what they call a group ADR you know or I loop group no I want actual actors that you know we worked with and so we got our cow hands to come back and be different people because they you know like their performance is actually good you know and I I don't really trust loop group material and um that, because it well it's just People don't know the story, you know, they're not really in it, and it can sound very formulaic. Um, so everything that can be done in a handcrafted way is um, all the better for it, I reckon. You got a sore gut? No. 
You act like it pains you to hit two words together. That's a great example, Jane, of, of, of the detail that you go into and the care you take with all the individuals as well. I mean, as you say, normally we'd have a, a loop group where you get voice extras in to do these voices, but you took the time to cast them, write all of the lines for that um, scene in the kitchen while they're waiting for uh, to find out where Phil is. All the lines were scripted and directed by you and then you sat with Leah and cut them all, went through all the takes and placed them all. And that's just for background loop group. I know, but if I hear one line that is off, if I hear one piece of dialogue that I don't believe, like I feel that is some, you know, you're, sh you're shooting arrow of doubt right through it. And that's, uh, I think that's not acceptable. So for me, my ear can really hear that, you know? I love that you say that, Jane, and, 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 it, and it, it makes me think about something that really struck me about the film, that every detail is well thought out, perfectly placed. Um, one of the things that, you know, just to follow up also on what you were talking about, you know, the temptation to make the cattle drive very big. Um, this film is remarkable in its use of dynamic range and contrast, and especially the way you use silence and very quiet moments to set that, to set that tone. I'd, I'd love for you to talk more about that. Just, I, I feel like we, you know, Phil Burbank, we, we feel him even when he's not on screen, he just has this sort of presence that is always kind of looming there. And I love the quiet moments, like even in the, the, the red mill in after he leaves after that first dinner sequence and it gets quiet, the feeling completely changes. And it's remarkable what you're doing with, with sound to, to strike that, that mood. Yes, that was um, something we all really collaborated with together. Do you remember that when um, Phil's going upstairs to go to bed and George is not there and um, you suddenly see the big guy's actually really lonely? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, it also is really important because, as I was saying to the others, that, like, you know, a lot of the first part of the story is about the George and Rose story. Um, actually, of course, the whole film works on the basis of being a portrait of Phil. And um, so it was, I think, really important to have this um, alone time with Phil where we sense his vulnerability much more, you know, like seeing him sign his name very pleased with himself into the um, book of the hotel thing <laughs> and then go upstairs and no George, you know, and looking kind of anxious and dishevelled. Um, and I, I, I can't remember all the details of it. We did try a lot of different things and take them out and put them in and, you know, it was just like a... We pulled his feet back quite a lot on that particular scene because we normally had his feet as quite heavy whenever he was in a scene, but on that particular scene we pulled his feet back quite a lot. So it was you know, adding to that vulnerability. And Yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the choices we did make, though, wasn't it? Like all throughout the film that we were said, like, well, what sound effects were we actually elevate and um, focus on and it was like Phil's whatever sounds Phil makes. You know. The creaks around his feet as well. So I, I guess the, like the character of the house is also brought out by having creaks as he's walking and if you can hear a creak in a house it's it's quiet. That's right the creaks can be so kind of corny you have to be really careful with them don't you like 
quality of them. Found the moments for the dog barks. It was, you know, how many should we have? Where where should they be? Like everything was absolutely precise. And the cowboys outside, whether to have them or not, yeah. One of the things that came through about that house very clearly is, I mean, it's this beautiful, you know, mansion that's on the prairie uh kind of incongruously but then you have wind whistling through the doors and around the windows you get a sense of like this place is not airtight or sound tight and it's going to be cold in the winter so that was a remarkable way to set that feeling and that tone i I can't underestimate johnny greenwood's music um in helping us set up the emotional tones of the film as well and and how rob is or a musician anyway um is highly uh, gifted, I think, and, and, you know, I've worked with Rob before on Top of the Lake as well and just in um, working score into the film, you know, like just getting the right balance for it and trying every which way. I mean, the joy of this mix, the joy of the sound was that everything was flexible and everything was about um, is this helping the film work more? You know, like one of the things that I always think is that, you know, I have a great deal of respect for the guide track. And a lot of people get really irritated by that, but not this team. Um, because I think we all understand there's, you know, 18 tracks in the guide track. And I just want to talk about guide tracks for a while, a little minute, because I think they're they actually created over the 20 weeks of the shoot. Of, of, sorry, of the edit. And um, that means that all the balances within it are really very carefully worked out. And, um, you know, you're going to do a, a mix in three weeks um, that ignores that. You know, I think you're in for real trouble. So one of the things I love to do is to go back, you know, like we've done a scene, I said, just let's just hear the guide track. I just want to see if we've altered things or changed things, we've forgotten anything. Um, and like, some people will be really irritated, but I think we all got to see how helpful that was, you know, that, that there, you know, it was a thing like have we actually lost something or we have we focused it more, you know? Because sometimes when you add sound, you diffuse the focus and that's not what we were really looking for. Um, and so we would always use this as a kind of a check, you know. And, I, you know, I think it's like um, one of those stories, like there's a Greek myth where, you know, they go person goes into the underworld and they've got a sort of a golden string you know and they go into the dark and and you know it's their only way back and I do feel like that's with the guide as well like it is such a valuable tool and um, not enough is made of that you know with the sort of sense of the power that you can make with sound but the power can be like off filter you know and so it's always like keeping it to the point, which is the story. There is no other point. Well, that that leads me to want to ask a, a, just a process question uh, for Rob and Tara and Dave. How how involved were you or were you involved during Jane's uh, picture editing process? Were you feeding sounds? Were you in conversation with them about what you wanted to do? So, I mean, I, obviously we want to avoid that kind of that kind of not great situation where the first time Jane hears stuff is on the final mixing stage. That's a recipe for disaster, right? Exactly. So, so we, we really circumnavigate that these days by um, uh, we're sort of always mixing in a way too. So while Jane's cutting with Pete and we're getting those, um, you know, tracks from Johnny come through and, and Jane and Pete are shaping all of that, um, Jane's coming over to, to my room and 
we're doing, you know, sort of mini mixes, I guess, as we preview sounds and then bounce those down to to groups to then send over to to Pete to cut in. So we're gradually building up the track over the length of the picture cut. And then Jane and Pete are doing their own internal balances in the Abbott and mm. doing their own sort of selection process. So then when we hear that back again, it's a it's a process of, of natural selection. That's that process. I guess just creating a very realistic, you know, the, the, the pictures spoke for themselves quite a lot. I mean, you looked at him walking across that courtyard, across some... Um, uh, you know, the ranch and the first scenes through the window and the film speaks to you. So you, you just honour what you see. <laughs> and, and and it's that sort of film where we, we're not, we don't have a city, there's no cars in the background. It's them on this ranch, in this house, that to me the house was almost kind of like a character in itself that you kind of had to think, okay, how does it respond to, um, you know, Phil and George have been there for ages and it's their house. And when this stranger comes into the house, how does it react to them? And, and, and you know, when, when she arrived and, and all of a sudden Phil can hear her through the walls, you know, then all of a sudden the world changes. And, and for Phil, it drove him back and he was running outside, you know, but um, it's, it's just listening and looking at what you see as well. So from a sound design perspective, you know, trying to, Add to the guy track, which was amazing, and hearing the hearing the music right from the first day I started, and I thought, "What's this music? I thought, is this is this temp music?" I said, "Because it's crazy good." And uh, then, <laughs> then you realise actually it's Johnny Greenwood, and, and it's like, okay, so I can have a conversation with this music right from the beginning. And so, the, uh, how do I fit into that music? And so, I would always play the music right up front and the dialogue right up front when I was doing this because it's like, how can I add to this conversation? And not try and um, you know stick a spanner in the works. I really, uh, I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. I, I know that um, that you had access to the score very early on in the process, which is just amazing. But Jane, I, I wanted to ask you since we we were talking about uh, Johnny Greenwood's music, and it's it's so tonally important. I'm curious, what were the conversations you had with Johnny at the beginning of the process? I know he he wrote a bunch of sketches for you before you even shot. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, that's something I learned from the piano, um, how powerful that was, like, obviously because um, Holly Hunter's character, Ada, needed to play the piano during the scenes um, quite often. So we would need, we needed to have um, those piano pieces um, from Michael Nyman. And um, so he, he really wrote most of the music before we began shooting that film. And I, I loved that so much and saw the benefit of it and the freedom of it for the composer, actually. And so ever since then, I've tried to create a situation where it's the, the music comes really at the same time as the shooting, you know, or before. Um, and I think most composers, well, all the composers I know really love that. Um, I think first they're maybe a little nervous they haven't done it before. They think, oh, you know, surely I should be fitting it to the image. But actually... Um, it means that there's, that there's a real integrity to the music, you know, that they're not trying to fit it to anything. And the music has its own song to sing. Um, and then there's a much better and more interesting, I think, um, dynamic between um, the, you know, the images and his music. So with, with Johnny, he is, like, has to be said, a genius. And 
is also incredibly modest and incredibly easy to work with. He's not in the least bit, um, I would say, difficult or touchy about what you're going to use or not use. And he's um, just, you know, sensitive and delicate. And um, if you if you want something else that you don't feel has been quite achieved, he just he just loves it. You know, like if you challenge him to say, like, I'm not quite sure that we've got what we need in this moment you know like I was quite fussy about the music um when um Phil's character is remembering Bronco Henry in the sacred place and it's got that um sort of really beautiful personal time with him there um and he tried you know several different things and then Pete and I tried several different things with the music so it's a little bit of like everybody is easygoing and we all try our best, you know, which is, I think, the, the right thing. It's, you know, like, because, of course, how it's fitted, you know, we're working with it all the time, the editor and myself, so that we know it in a way how it works with the film better than Johnny does. But, you know, he's, uh, he, he just gave us an amazing, amazing array of sketches um, to, to play with and work with. I mean, sometimes it was just awkward because, you know, we felt embarrassed that we weren't able to go fast enough in the edit to start, you know, placing the music. You know, we didn't know the film well enough to know what we should be doing. And it was very exciting. We went, okay, like the next three days, all we're going to do is try all the different music everywhere and, you know, work out. And that was one of the really exciting days because you just, it's so surprising what's going to work. Like you have all your expectations and then you, you just go, you're just taught new things by the the power of actually just experiencing it or, or hearing it, which, you know, I really love. Um, and, you know, one of the other things um, before I take off is um, what I loved in the mix, which was still really dynamic, was that when we felt like we needed to focus a moment and we didn't have the sound effect or something, uh, Dave was just, like, amazing at um, jumping off and going and creating that and coming back with it so we could put it in. It, it always had this sort of feeling of flexibility and, um, you know, Rob always keeps the room really casual and um, easygoing. <laughs> He's just, no, Rob, you're really remarkable in that way um, of, of, of keeping the things moving in a low-key, relaxed way and be so generous to the director um, about helping them uh, feel confident they're doing their best, you know, the, the right things happen. <laughs> Look, I, I'm really, you know, pleased that everyone's responded so well to this, to this film and this soundtrack because it proves the audience is listening. Um, and you're question earlier glenn about dynamic range it's almost like with jane you have to throw out all the rules there are no rules there literally are no rules and you have to go with what the story tells you to do and you can never say that something needs to be this loud or this soft or uh, all bets are off well jane i know you've got uh, you've, you're you've got a lot of commitments and you're very busy i really appreciate you taking the time today and and joining us with the this this was um, this was amazing having this opportunity to talk um, about a part of the process of filmmaking which can really create or destroy a film. So I want to follow up a little bit about the Johnny Greenwood score, which is just so mesmerizing and amazing. And I, I just want to talk with you all about this this notion of having access to the score, which was written before they shot. So you had it 
all the way through the post-production process. That's really obviously uh, highly unusual. How did that affect your process of, of designing the edit, doing the sound design, cutting the effects, and then mixing? I mean, I'd say from a sound design perspective, it really meant that you had, uh, it gave you a great grounding in, in how complex the score was going to be, how minimalist it was going to be. And so it kind of tells you um, sometimes how detailed you might need to be within a particular moment. You know, uh, if there's grass blowing in the background, uh, well, I probably would do it anyway. But, you know, like all of that character and that is going to have a place to shine because of the minimalist nature of the score. But that said, like there was a moment where um, when they arrive uh, at, um, you know, Redmill or, you know, the, all the cowboys are walking across um, uh, towards the pub or towards the bar. And I thought it was going to be the once in the uh, once upon a time in the West um, sort of a moment where we heard the cowboys, we heard the squeaky things in the background, we had the horses and the dogs and that sort of thing. I th and I thought, okay, there won't be much score or, that, you know, in my mind I'm sort of doing this. But then Johnny Greenwood's score turned up and we heard that music there and there was no need for all of that. We, we heard the spurs, we heard the wind, but we didn't need all that extra detail in the background because it wasn't helping the story. Um, and so it's kind of like that's a particular moment that I can sort of, you know, reference where the, the score really informed uh, what we ended up doing with the sound. I think um, just to add to knowing what the tone is as well already, like, for instance, if the score was um, going to come in and perhaps I wanted to do a wind gust leading into the score, I could try and match that tone so it was seamless entry and exit and that kind of thing. So having that at the beginning and knowing that's what's going to pretty much be there at the end is just, I mean, it, it, you know, it makes it such a really seamless kind of process. You also knew where you had silences, you know, where, where you had no score and where you could actually, um, you know, you, you were playing you know, forefront uh, of the track. And so it was an amazing thing being able to see exactly where that was very early on. And what I found interesting from um, a mixing perspective was the instrumentation was very straightforward. There might be one cello and one viola, um, you know, so stems were, you know, there might be two, there might be three. I think we had a maximum of four stems. Um, but the the set because the instrumentation is so simple, it demands its place. So it, it it almost mixes itself because it says this is the music. It's extremely well recorded, beautifully played. Um, I think that you know a lot of analog uh, processing to 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 get it to sound full and front, but it's not multi layered. It's not overdubbed. Um, so it's it just it sits and you know where it's going to sit, and that I think you know made the sound design process um, inform that a lot as well. That's really interesting. And then how was the score delivered to you? Did you have a? Uh, you said that you know it's a, the the instrumentation is pretty spare and minimalist. Was it just stereo pairs that came in, or did you have it? Was it five one, or how how was it delivered to you? I think there were you know, maybe a couple of stereos and maybe a decatree or a quad, um, you know, we had talks with uh, Johnny's engineer and we we, uh, we just wanted it to, to, we wanted to have what we needed um, and no more. Um, so it would have been, so, you know, sort of as it came off the floor in a way. Yeah. 
I want to follow up on something Dave said uh, about, you know, moments that weren't going to be scored. And so you had silence to kind of play against, but, uh, you know, the, the, the dirty little secret of our business is often it's, it's, it's much easier to, to ha have big bombastic sound and a bunch of action sequences. And you can hide a lot of sins behind, you know, explosions and gunfire and car screeches and all that sort of stuff. You got nothing to hide behind in this movie. That must have been hugely challenging for you. It's kind of beautiful. It, it, it just, it, it's such a great place to play in. Um, because you get to play with extreme detail. I was just going to say, I think a lot of it also plays uh, is thanks to, you know, um, Richard Flynn, the location sound recordist, and Leah Katz, our dial supervisor, who did such a wonderful job with the dialogue so that when it came to, you know, building the backgrounds, the atmosphere, um, we could really focus on just what we wanted and not, you know, trying to then put things in so that the, um, you know, to smooth out the dialogue and stuff. So we could be really minimalist with it because the dialogue was just so beautiful um, to begin with. And then I think also, you know, talking about the big bombastic films, like usually with Atmos you think that's what it's there for. But I think this film really lent itself to being mixed in Atmos as well because um, it allowed us to kind of be really specific with those sounds and, you know, we could strip back and then just have, you know, a wing gust moving around the room, which was enough to then make, let the audience feel like they're in that location or using it as a tool for helping with that um, torment between um, Phil and Rose, you know, hearing his footsteps um, in the house when she's upstairs or or the whistling out the window or, you know, Rob can talk more about, you know, the banjo and piano du duel. I felt like that scene really came to life when it was mixed in Atmos. It was really added to that tension and, yeah, I loved that. Rob, how 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 involved was um was Jane in the mix? You know, and and w w I think this is her first time working in Dolby Atmos. What was her reaction to having that as a tool, and how did that process go? Well, Jane's there all day, every day, um, and she's just she's incredibly curious, you know, um, and it's all a process of discovery, and she wants to know. Also, oh, you know what what's what's this? You know, she sees the objects moving around what's that so we, we explained um what the objects were and how we were using them and then she wanted to experiment with ideas of her own you know so okay so what if um what if we had you know phil's feet upstairs while we're downstairs um and she would get involved in those conversations and then you know she'd see the objects moving and say oh why is that over there maybe we could try that there or no i think that pan's a bit drastic um so yeah it's i it's her uh, her curiosity i think uh really fed into that there was something else uh, i mentioned earlier uh, when jane was here about um uh, the ADR and the way she was working the loop group and, you know, they, they worked it and they were very precise. And if, if she heard something out of place, she'd call it and, you know, then all of a sudden she'd be pulled out of the film. When we recorded the vintage cars, it was the same thing. So we had a 1924 Dodge that we recorded uh, for one of the cars uh, and she said, that's not right. <laughs> and because, you know, all the, the, the guys, the car owners, they said, okay, because this is one that we could uh, get hold of at the time, uh, they said no, um, it's going to sound exactly the same as the 1912 Dodge. And they said it's the same engine, all this sort of thing. And she called it. She said, that's not right. You know, it's, it, it doesn't sound like our car. 
And so sure enough, we had to go and find this 1912 Dodge, go and record it. And it had more of a but 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 that sort of an engine. It was much more characterful, you know, like, so um, I love, I, I love that attention that she had to, to detail and that sort of, um, you know, uh, she listens, listens very hard. And we would mix a scene, you know, one way or a real one way. And then, you know, the next day she'd want to hear what it was like if we mixed it differently with some different ideas. So she's incredibly open to the mixing process and what it can bring to the story and the film. That's great. Well, Tara brought up one of my favorite sequences in the film, which is the dueling banjo and piano scene between Phil and Rose. Uh, there's not not a, not a syllable of dialogue in this sequence, but it is incredibly tense and fraught, and it's all done through the sound and the music. Shiverous, the picture editor would um, would be great to have in on on this particular conversation, because that that scene really is built around the um, the editorial and how those two instruments play together. There were the um, you know obviously they were both overdubbed, um, not that you'd ever know that from from listening to it, um, but that really played into the edit as well. So there was a lot of experimentation early on with that while they were cutting the scene early on. Um, and then in the mix, it was, it was, I think the whole film is building up to that moment. You know, when you see this film with an audience, you really feel that all the tension that's being built up with Phil's presence and his, you know, his constant bullying, um, it really all builds up to to that point in the film where we get to the to that piano and banjo duel. So that was a you know a good a good opportunity for us to explore the full dynamic range as well of of what we had because the audience is literally on the edge of their seats by this point. So we could go down to to almost silence just to hear the creak of Phil's boot um, in the beginning. And ending with huge crescendo of the of the banjo, um, and that was also a good use of the Dolby Atmos because uh, when we're from Rose's perspective down at the piano, we can hear the banjo start right in the in the left rear, and it slowly creeps over the roof as we're coming in on zooming in on Rose the banjos approaching us from behind 
and then will be spread that banjo sound out to take up the whole roof and then use up the halo speakers at the front so you're almost in rose's head at that point um for the big crescendo at the end without a doubt well i i also want to acknowledge i think you've got uh probably one of the most powerful and distinctive foley cues of the entire year which is uh peter's denim jeans that's me in my exercise pants <laughs> his, his pants <laughs> spoiler alert is that right <laughs> it's a very important plot point tell us about that no actually that was something we did really early on just when we were feeding kind of um david and i's temp kind of cue sounds to the edit um so i just jumped in in my exercise pants and just and just did it and obviously there are a few other layers but that's that particular sound um and J jane loved it ended up staying throughout throughout the edit and into the mix and stuff so um yeah <laughs> well i'd love to i'd love to wrap up just by asking i know this is a, a sort of a a, a an interesting question, but I, I, I would love just to ask each of you for a favorite sound moment of the film that when you're, when you're watching the film and it comes up, just makes you kind of giddy and happy inside when that, uh, when that comes up, Robert, you want to start us off? Oh, uh, well, for me, it was, uh, you, that, that banjo piano jewel scene that we, that we just talked about when that came on in the, in the cinema with a, with a room full of people, I got chills. It was, um, it was remarkable. And I, th I think a lot of that was to do with the journey that Jane had taken us on to get to that point. A lot of the times we're not always aware of the road we're going down when we're, when we're mixing or editing. Um, a lot of it's in the director's imagination. Um, and when you see it all sort of come together on the screen like that, and you have the memories of the experience that you had in the room when you were creating it, um, th that that was a very special moment for me. Well, normally I'm like a wind junkie. I love wind gusts and all that kind of th thing. So usually that's my favourite sound in any kind of film if a wind gust gets in. But I love um, I love Phil's spurs in this film, um, which Dave created. I just I think it's fantastic that sound, and I love what it did for his character. And um, yeah, I love I loved that. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. I mean, the Spurs, uh, um, I don't really have a, a favourite sound. I, I just love the, I just love the entire soundtrack. I love the world that we helped create. And, um, but the Spurs, I didn't realise that they sounded like that, that they actually went ting, ting, ting. Um, I love that I, yeah, I, I bought a whole lot of uh, uh, show jumping uh, poles, like logs for the log scene. Uh, uh, Tara cut some as well, but I, just wanted to get that resonant sort of stuff, and so they're still sitting on my lawn out here. Um, <laughs> um, and the rope, which you know was was a my rabbit hole. I went down a rabbit hole, and it's mixed so delicately into the into the the film. But it was actually the thing that I I I, I was constantly reworking the rope, um, and, and that was more in my mind, just trying to make it right. Um, I did a version where it was dry. Uh, and because uh, I've never, you know, braided a rope before, of course. Um, and Jane said, it, it sounds too dry, you know. And so we went back to the drawing board and I was wetting all this. Um, yeah. Anyway, so it, it arrived where it arrived and um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about it. But the Spurs, 
Uh, I, I, I love the Spurs. It's, yeah. I put them on and I was walking around a Foley room. All right. Well, th thank you guys so much for taking the time and joining us uh, on this conversation. And it was, it was great to have Jane in for a while to, to give some context and overview as well. It's, uh, sounds like you guys sounds like you guys had a really special working relationship with her. Oh yeah, totally. One of those one of those special ones. Thanks again to Jane, Robert, Dave, and Tara for joining us today to talk about the power of the dog. And thanks to our friends at Netflix. Uh, who put this conversation together for us. If you're not subscribed to us already, please do. The Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcast. Until then, thanks for joining us. Sound and Image Lab is brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines and our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>